Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and today we welcome Joseph Earl Thomas to the show. Joseph is a writer and doctoral candidate in English at the University of Pennsylvania with an MFA in English from Notre Dame. Today, we're discussing his debut book, a memoir called Sink, about his childhood in Philadelphia. We talk about why embracing and sharing trauma feels like an act of defiance for Black writers right now, what it means to have no adult role models, and some of the formal choices Joseph made in the telling of his story. Our March book club pick is the essay collection Bad Feminist by Roxane Gay. Shanita Hubbard will join us on March 29th for our book club discussion. Quick reminder, everything we talk about in each episode can be found in the link in the show notes. If you love the stacks and you want more of it, things like our incredible Discord community, our monthly bonus episodes, our virtual meetups to discuss our book club picks, you must join the Stacks Pack on Patreon. It's just $5 a month and you got all of the things I just mentioned, plus a lot more. And you get to know that you're part of making this Black woman-run independent podcast a reality every single week. Head to patreon.com slash the stacks and join now. I want to give a special shout out to some of our newest members of the Stacks Pack, Loretta Arvizu, Eric Pelisari, Angela Forrestal, Laurel Hamming, Kelly, and Anne McDonald. Thank you all so much, and thank you to the entire Stacks Pack. All right, now it's time for my conversation with Joseph Earl Thomas. All right, everybody, I'm super excited today. I'm joined by Joseph Earl Thomas, whose brand new debut memoir is called Sync. It's out now. Joseph, welcome to the Stacks. Hey, welcome, Tracy. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you about your book. But before I start asking my questions, I'm going to ask you to tell folks in about 30 seconds or so what Sync is about. Yeah, um, I see Sync being primarily about extending conversations that have to do with Black childhood specifically and interiority um, and staying with that rather than like moving on to an adult kind of self uh, at the end of the book and thinking of coming of age terms. Yeah, it's definitely focused on your childhood and it is pretty brutal. I mean, times were tough. Like it was it, I had a difficult time reading the book because I was like, can can he become an adult so that I can <laughs> move on? Like I was like I need to know that he's okay, which is probably why you wanted to stay in the child space. Will you talk a little bit yeah. more about that? Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, there's like a a trope that that goes around, right? And I was talking to a bunch of friends um, about the book 
about like, oh yeah, you know, what AIDS did you think you would live to? You know, there's like the kind of joke that a lot of folks will say like, you know, not living past 25, especially if you're like a um, black person in a certain setting. And um, it was really important to me to kind of uh, think about that space as being important in and of itself with the fact that like a lot of people that I know um, who would have been around, especially like did not grow to become adults or like that is not, you know, a reality for a lot of folks that I still know. And even when I go back to my old neighborhood, I think about this and this was a conversation that I was recently having with my friends. It's like, oh yeah, you know, so-and-so like, you know, didn't make it. Like this, like half of the mm-hmm. people that we knew actually that was their entire life, like beginning to end. And I think I was at a point when I was younger and a lot of my friends were at a point when we were all younger where everybody thought that like that would be the terminus, right? Like it would not go past a certain extent. And I, I kind of wanted to take that seriously um, right. in a way. Yeah. Yeah. But let me ask you then about the adults in your life when you were a kid, because they did make it. Right. Yeah. And like, what does it mean to make it? I don't know. I don't even know what the question is, but just hearing you talk about like kids feeling like as a child thinking that like there was a possibility that you wouldn't make it, that you would die or that something bad would happen to you and, and you would cease to exist in some way. And then thinking about the fact that when you are a child, you're surrounded by adults who have made it at least in the sense that they are alive. But like in your case, you know, your grandfather figure was sort of a monster to you. Like, like, so what does it mean to make it when that sometimes that alternative looks really horrible? Yeah, it's interesting because, like, um, I mean, I maintain really close relationships with everyone in my family, right? So, like, um, for example, my grandfather, actually, he just died a couple weeks ago. Oh, I'm um, sorry to hear that. Around that time. And, you know, we, main, you know, we talked all through my uh, adult life and everything like that. And he, I, and it, it's funny because as a child, I think it's like, I want to to be clear about this, the way that things feel really fucked yes. up. Sometimes, even if. You know, like somebody can right, can yell at you or something and to them it can be like no big deal. But to mm-hmm. you as a kid, sometimes you're like, oh, my God, this person is going to fucking kill me or something. Right. Right. And, right. you know, I, I tried to, to stay with that. And so that was part of uh, trying to, to, to extend or be kind of intense about the relationships between adult and child. And then I always was very frustrated because I never knew any adults who had a kind of life that seemed worth living or that they seemed happy mm. about having. And that was really fresh. So it was like my grandmother, um, she was murdered maybe about a couple years ago now, oh, man. Um, but also lived the kind of life where we never saw her happy. We never saw my grandfather happy. My father was always in prison. Uh, you know, half of family was always in prison. So it wasn't like, um, it wasn't until I became an adult, right? Where I met people who like, oh yeah, I went to this school and did this thing, right? But those people were nowhere present in my actual life. And so there was like this really claustrophobic feeling that you're supposed to be ashamed of, of course. Like I I come to realize this later that uh, (laughs) you're supposed to be ashamed of and not be honest about that kind of Mm -hmm. uh, feeling or experience. But yeah, but I guess what I would say is that, um, you know, and my sister is probably my primary interlocutor with these kind of conversations who was just walking out of my house with her kids and everything because I was like, I'm going to talk right now. Oh, Um, you know, uh, we'd be like, yeah, who was an example of an adult that we knew that you would want to grow into? And there was no one. Um, there wasn't anyone. And so it felt like, OK, either you can make this somehow good or better um, or then you have to grow up and like deal with this other kind of thing that you don't want either. Do you remember the first time you did encounter an adult 
like how old you were that, that you wanted to grow into, like how old you were or what that looked like? Yeah, um, I was in college. <laughs> I okay. was, um, so you I were an adult. Up, right, exactly. Yeah, I was an adult. Um, a very awkward adult who was like, I can do stuff now and I'm figuring these things out. And I went to a community college um, and I met folks there and I, I started meeting folks where I was like, oh, okay, this is an idea. Um, and I was I joined the military when I was like 19. So a lot of that kind of stuff started to change. And, you know, you get out of, you know, Philadelphia, like in a particular neighborhood or or space. And then you meet people who, you know, these things are normal for. They were like, you can go to grad school and people will pay you for that. I was like, that's a fucking lie. I don't believe that that's, that that's true. And I was like, oh, that is true. This is like a possibility. And so things start to change around that time. Interesting. Um, so the framework of the book is it's a memoir, but it's written like a novel. We t- we're, you're in third person. You're talking about Joey, which is I'm assuming what you were called as a child. Yeah. Um, why did you want to write it like that? What did what did that unlock for you? How did that help you or or not? I guess to tell your story. What why was that? I've I've never read a memoir like this, so I'm wondering, you know, how much of that decision, like how you came to that decision. Yeah, I think um, that's a good question. I, I think the. Um, the idea behind memoir, a lot of them, it's like there's a essayistic part of it where you get like exposition that explains the scenes mm-hmm. that you have, mm-hmm. um, you know, with like rough narrative. And I didn't want to do a lot of exposition and I wanted to stay as tight as I could to like a childhood version of myself, even if I hated that version of myself sometimes. Right. And I didn't want to try and explain things that I would not have had no capacity to know. At that okay. time. So it was really important for me to stay in a kind of not just unknowing or not knowing things, but like not knowing what I didn't know kind of moments, which had to do with like where education was coming from, et cetera. And one of the ways that I had found to do that was to say to, to kind of um, position myself as purely character um, mm-hmm. and then build the kind of world around those scenes or situations without going into like an eye that was um, giving myself maybe a certain kind of comfort, uh, but didn't, but that wouldn't feel real to the um, circumstances themselves, I guess. Right. A few weeks ago on the show, we had Camon Felix who wrote uh, a memoir. And one of the things that I asked her was, you know, what does she hope that folks will keep in mind uh, when she finishes or when they read the book? And she said something. And this, I talked to her like, the day I started your book. So it was really in my mind as I was reading your book. But what she said was that she hoped that people wouldn't think of her as a person so that they mm-hmm. could grapple with what was actually happening in the story instead of like feeling sympathy for her or feeling yeah. annoyed by her or whatever. And so I'm wondering if maybe any of that was in this for you where there's a separation between Joey and Joseph for the reader, because I kept finding myself being like, this is a memoir. Stop. Like doing character analysis, like this is a person. So I'm wondering if if that was present for you at all. Yeah, I really love that. I mean, I love that episode too. Um, And I agree with that. I think that that's a really good way to look at it. And it also brings, you know, it opens up the space of being like, all right, I want to ask more questions or present more sets of questions that I want to like provide answers or or what have you, right? Which I think tends to happen um, when you get more kind of essayistic. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so this is just such a small thing, but (laughs) the start of your book, I knew that I loved you from the start of your book because on the first page and the first sentence, we talk about easy bake ovens. And so for me personally, I just felt like you really brought me in because that is very much specifically my entire personality at a young age. (laughs) So I just want people to know 
while the book is very brutal in some some parts, there is some serious easy bake loving, easy bake oven loving happening, and it is a joy. Uh, not a question, just a statement. I used to love those things; they were so important. I know, and then at towards the end of the book, you're like, "It was just a microwave," and I was like, "Did he, did he have to do that <laughs> well, to me? Like, I like I didn't actually, I didn't need to be brutalized as well." Like, <laughs> well, that's the weird thing too, isn't it, Tracy? I feel like you know. When you when you're a kid and you get this thing in your life that you don't have any other way of explaining and someone tells you like, oh, this is like an oven. You're like, oh, this is amazing. Right. But then you do yeah. get to a point where you get disenchanted by a whole host of, of items yeah. or whatever. But it was totally. really fun for a long time, you know, and it was I so think that fun. Matters. It was so fun. It was like, I mean, I love to bake still. And while I don't attribute that necessarily to my love of my easy bake oven as a child, I still think fondly on that in the, in the sense that like perhaps it all sprung from my love of my pink and purple easy bake with like mm-hmm. the special claw that would like pull out the circular yes. <laughs> trays and all of that. Like it's like, oh, I'm just going to put this in the oven. Like I'm a grown woman baking a circular cake cookie. <laughs> with a little brownie, the little brownie. Pan yeah, the brownie. And then you have to get like the special ingredient package i bet now on tiktok they're like here's how to make the yeah. like, copycat easy bake i'm afraid oven. to look i'm afraid to i look would at never it. i don't even want to know yeah i don't I, yeah i want to live happily in my nostalgia thank you very much okay i want to go back to the book even though that is in the book but more seriously to the book so how did you approach writing about like some of the abuse and things that you experienced? Like, how did you know how much to share? How did you think about your audience taking it in? How did you think about your own mental health? Like, how are you navigating writings and this stuff? Because, I mean, there's a lot of humor in the book, which I really appreciate and like, because that feels super holistic to an experience, especially as a child. But I also, there were moments in the book where I was like, I don't want to do this. Like, I don't want to know what happens because it's so hard. And obviously I pushed through, but I'm just wondering how you were thinking about it as the storyteller and also the person who lived it. Yeah. I mean, this is something that all the way up until the very end, I went back and forth on because, I mean, so of course the standard thing when you write a memoir is to, you know, ask people to read parts or, you know, what degree people are comfortable being in it. And I didn't keep anything in that people were like, that's not true. Or I don't feel comfortable to this degree about it. And so a lot of it was like having conversations with people, whether that was like my aunt or my sister or my grandfather or my mom or someone which actually kind of brought me closer to people because a lot of folks mm-hmm. were like, oh, I remember that. Like, I yeah. didn't mean I didn't mean that that way. Or people were like, oh, I remember that now that you bring it up, you know? Right, or they'd be course. like, this was the name of that person or that or that scene or it was on this day or whatever. Uh... So so some of it was that. Um, and and there were some things where people were like, okay, I don't want that in there. And I was like, okay, that, that's fine. I won't put that. And then there was, um, you know, the other part of it where I did, I had friends and family being like, you are going too easy on this person mm. or this situation. And you need to be more like, this is, you know, fucked up. This is what happened. And I was kind of like, yeah, but like, that's, it's not really about that. Right. Like it's not, you know, right. not like a hit piece kind of thing. It's about right. the feeling of, of being in a set of experiences. So I guess um, I, it, one way I it is I went back and forth on um, what was appropriate based on what people felt comfortable with. And if, if there were things that people wouldn't talk about at all, I tended not to put it in there. Um, which meant to me, like, if this thing is going to be out in the world and it is, like, about uh, myself and people who I love and still speak to on a regular basis, 
if there's something that they would never speak about, I was like, okay, well then I'm not going to include that. And that helps kind of decide. Right. And how did you think about your audience? Like the strangers who are going to yeah. read it? I, it's complicated, Tracy. Cause I mean, <laughs> you know, there's this way that like, you're not supposed to say bad things um, at all. If you come from a certain set of people. Yeah. So if you're like black working or non working poor, you know, there's a certain degree of respectability that you're supposed to have about like sharing experiences. And um, in my adult life, I'm like right up against that all the time because I'm in a okay. graduate program, which is like, that's only respectability politics. But I think I ultimately was like, if there is something, if there's a reader who is going to believe that these experiences represent like every Black person or every whatever, I'm like, that person is already lost to me. <laughs> that person's sure. already <laughs> too far gone to me. And I was kind of like... <laughs> I was kind of like, at that point, it's it's fine. You know, I, I can accept like not having that reader um, along. And I was also, you know, for my for my own thinking, my own experience, if I was being if some people thought I was still being too mild in oh. things, people, people who, you know, in my own family or people who I grew I up with thought I was being too mild, then that meant to me that I was like, OK, I'm striking some kind of balance. If there are people who are like, you are being really tame and, you know, underselling certain things that happen. I was like, okay. Yeah. I mean, so one of the things that came to me in reading your book, which is what I appreciated most about it, but also made me think a lot about books in general and more specifically books by black people and especially, especially books that are coming out now um, after the summer of 2020, when yeah. the, the, the discovery of black Americans by white Americans in America yeah in 2020 there was so much of this like we don't want to see black trauma and like mm -hmm. we don't want to see black pain and we don't want to read slavery stories and like we want to celebrate black people and and obviously that's a pushback to what has been presented as right. black people in the media it's a pushback to you know the uh, oscar winning performances by drug addict mothers and yeah incarcerated men in these things. So I I understand where that impulse comes from. But reading your book is one of the first books I've read since that's come out like since 2020, not in the immediate aftermath, but you know, had time to be published in 2020, yeah. where I felt like we're talking about the things that happen in the black working and non-working poor communities that had sort of been shunned for a little bit because it was like, oh, this is too dark or too stereotypical or too whatever. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering sort of, there's not really, a, there's not a specific question, but the question in there is right. sort of like, what was that like for you maybe pitching this book, talking about this book in the publishing space, trying to get it published? What, were there conversations about that? Were you having conversations about not wanting to write this story in a certain way or like any of that kind of stuff? Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good question, Tracy. I, you know, I, so um, at first I did think about that a lot and I wasn't, this isn't the first book that I had written. I mean, I had written a collection of short stories. I had written like a fantasy novel. Then I had written most of this other novel that didn't, that didn't get out there. And it felt honestly, like I was circling around these questions and not being honest with myself um, or what kinds of stories I wanted to see and or read. And it ended up feeling like when I would try and pitch these other stories or or what have you, they just felt flat. And that, that was the response of when I, you know, submission wouldn't work for a certain set of things, or I would be talking to people who I trusted, who's writing, who I exchanged writing with, and would be like, oh, there's like something missing here. Or like, 
you are, you know, hiding from this particular set of problems that you really Mm -hmm. want to talk about Mm -hmm. by like supplanting it in this like, you know, 30 year old protagonist who has a completely different set of, you know, life considerations, et cetera. And so, you know, I, I eventually had to just start trying to be more honest with myself about what I thought was important there. And I also am kind of like, I, I started to feel the way that, you know, people are like, we shouldn't talk to each other about our salaries in whatever world or whatever job. And I was like, who is that helpful for ultimately? Right. right? I'm, right. I'm like, I don't think that I, I just didn't think that not talking about painful experiences was helpful. And there's also, you know, uh, a kind of tradition of going back and forth on that problem, I think, in thinking about like, you know, African-American literature in general, right? And so I am kind of like, it's not only pain, you know, it's not only right. joy. These are just a kind of set of experiences that can sometimes but not always be generalizable. And uh, it was it was more valuable to me to be kind of straightforward, as straightforward as I could about that. Um, particularly if I'm thinking about the way we discuss children or the way we, uh, the 2020 discovery of like black yeah. people is, is kind of always as like um, either already dead or as like aftermath. Mm-hmm. And the kind of conversations about those stories too are not usually about the person's life um, right. or experiences. And sometimes we say a lot of things if, in the name of a set of individuals uh, that don't, have that much to do with them, but about their kind of status as symbols or props or whatever. And I'm like, I'm like, I don't think that that's the same as having really difficult conversations about our actual lived experiences. And there's a, for me, there's a disconnect between those two things. Right. And and for me as the reader of your story, I was like, I'm glad this book exists because your life happened. Your life is happening. Like, like, it's like, I I sort of understand that impulse a little bit if it's like fiction, maybe. But I'm like, yeah. I don't know. I don't want great writers to feel like they can't tell their stories because because it is deemed stereotypical. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, it's like, well, you happen like little Joey. This is Joey's story. Like, fuck you for trying to tell me that my story now now isn't writable. When if you had written this book in 2018, you know, like, so that, I, I don't know, that kept like popping yeah. into my head as I was reading this book, because it is sort of the first one that I've read, where I've been like, oh, this is the thing that we haven't seen as much of, because people decided that they wanted to tell black people how they could have yeah. grown up or whatever. There's, there's a program that we have to follow. In yes. a certain, now it certain has moment. to be black boy joy. If it's yeah. not black boy joy, yeah. we're not doing it. Even though you still are a black person who grew up in America when before we were discovered as having experienced racism. Yeah. <laughs> so you experienced all of the things previously. It's just, uh, anyway, but I also, Oh, sorry, yeah. go ahead. No, I was going to say, ultimately starts to feel kind of goofy, you know? I will say that, like, pushback and shame stuff has primarily come from, like, middle and upper middle class folks who are like, don't say that. You can't say that. Black Whereas, folks or white um, folks? Of, of all, like, black all. And, and white folks. And then the people who have been like, you're being more gentle than you should be. You're not being as honest about how brutal things have been or could be. We're all people that I like grew up with uh, or who are from the same neighborhood as me, et cetera. So I think there's something to be said there um, that things are interesting in that sense. Yeah, the way the the respectability politics sort of are playing out by class along class lines, kind of. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And like what is allowed to be said and by whom and under what circumstances. Right. Okay, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back. 
Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Okay, we're back. I wanted to just touch on something that you mentioned right before the break and and earlier in the conversation was about this shame, this stuff that you were sort of taught was shameful or that or that you were taught to feel shame around about your experiences growing up. How did you come to terms with some of that stuff in a way that you could write a book that's so open and honest? I mean, you're talking about sexual encounters. You're talking about, you know, having accidents in, at school. Like you're talking about the things that are like some of the most shameful things that were taught as kids. Like how did you get to a place as an adult where you felt like, okay, I can actually write this and put my name on it and tell people it's nonfiction and this is my story. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess I I should say like, I'm not always completely over everything, <laughs> you know, everything that's shameful, right? There are ways I think that I can still feel shame, right? I don't, uh, I'm not completely like, um, uh, uh, I haven't superseded that that thing altogether, but I think um, part of it is that I 
Um, one of the things that happens when you become older, you start to realize that these are much more common experiences than we are, yeah. uh, that we are allowed to, to recognize. And part of that is because everybody has been told that you can't say that. And so nobody's really saying it, even though it happened to like dozens and dozens of, of people over and over again. And this is especially true. So like now that I have my own kids and like I'll be going to like, you know, some school trip or something like that or whatever. And there will be kids in there. I'm like, oh, this is that kid. Like this kid is having the experience mm. or has had the experience that I'm like attempting to describe or something, but will probably never say that thing mm. or right. Or um, will probably never feel comfortable enough to say that thing in particular. And um, I also think, you know, shame has a lot to do with people teaching you, right? Like you said, teaching you that the thing is shameful. So it's also interesting to see other sets of kids who are like, have all kinds of accidents or like sexual experience and feel completely open about yeah. being like, I made this mistake or I, um, you know, I feel this way that I sh that otherwise one might feel completely ashamed of, whether that is sexual desire for a whole host of people or experiences or whatever. And um, I'm like, damn, you know, like, how does it help if I never make statements about, you know, the inverse of that or, or show the change from one form of thinking to another? It's like a show your work kind of thing. I don't like to yeah. pretend. Sometimes I hear, you know, I get in conversations with people and everybody be like, look at how far we've come kind of thing. Yeah. Like, things are great now. And I'm like, well, for one, things aren't great for most of the people I know. Like, their lives have gotten <laughs> right. worse in a lot of ways. And yeah. I don't like to skip over the fact that the, the it was very costly to learn a lot of things to get yeah. from one point to another uh and so I, I thought it was worth it you know to say these things and i talk pretty openly to my own kids uh the oldest of two are 12 and 10 and sometimes they yeah. ask me stuff and i will just be completely honest with them and that has helped um opening up those conversations i think in some of the situations at least for me as a reader it felt like you were very clearly you know, the victim of bullying or or adults, you know, taking things out on you. And and to me, I'm like, there's there's no shame in that, you know, right. in in my thinking. But then there's also parts of the book where you sort of let us in to maybe how you were thinking about it in the moment and also maybe how you think about it now as an adult. There's one part that comes to mind where you talk about how human human survival is predicated on other people getting hurt for other people to feel good and feel alive. How have you been grappling? I mean, it feels so on the nose, first of all, especially in a country like America that is that space. I mean, you know, the American dream is allegedly, you know, this heart and center of America. But to me, what I think about as a heart and center of America is, are you high enough on the American food chain that you don't have to worry about being the one who gets hurt for other people to feel good and alive? And that feels yeah. just like so American. So how do you grapple with that trade-off because there are parts of the book where you don't get hit and Ganny does. And there's parts of the book where you aren't getting picked on and another kid is. And obviously you've been, you know, you're tormented by some of the other kids in your school. And so of course you're like feeling the sense of relief. But now as you look back as an adult, like how how does that play into some of the shame? Because there's shame in feeling like you weren't the brave person to stick up yeah. for someone else. But there's also like this thing of like, hey, I just shit my pants at school because kids were fucking with me. Like, I'm not going to feel bad about someone else getting fucked with because I don't have to shit my pants today and go home and get yelled at. Like, so I totally get it. But there is this dichotomy of like, how can you be a good person and a safe, alive person yeah. who's not getting fucked with? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I feel like that is really on the nose, Tracy. It's useful to think about because 
I guess I tried to to be as thoughtful as possible about the space that you're in and how difficult it is to maybe. I think that there, when people tell me that they're a good person via like, I don't know, direct or indirect kinds of virtue signaling as like the main form of communication, I get really suspicious <laughs> of those people sometimes. <laughs> and I'm like, well, given the kind of circumstances that we are in, particularly in a country like America, right? It's like very unlikely that one is innocent Mm-hmm. though we are really obsessed with the idea that we are innocent mm-hmm. and we use that a lot in conversations uh, especially like to cudgel people you know for like being bad or whatever and I just think that I was trying to think about the earliest times in my life when I started to understand that um, and for me that had to do with like um, school it mostly had to do with, with school and I started to think like okay well is it that and and also we use innocence as like the ledger to be like we can treat someone nicely if they're innocent like right this you know this black person was oh murdered gosh. are how innocent are they to you know to describe what the fuck we're supposed to be able to you know it's like all kind of ridiculous yes. right oh my gosh I, the and, and it makes me thing. so mad yeah. <laughs> it makes me so fucking mad so mad <laughs> and you know and and I think. I want to be like, okay, well, the innocence thing has nothing to do with it, right? Like, mm-hmm. we need to establish norms for treating people well that don't have anything to do with that. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that starts for me, um, or that started for me in in childhood. And the way I did feel really bad, sometimes I felt more bad by watching somebody else get fucked mm-hmm. up than mm-hmm. I did when I was getting fucked up. But I was also like, you know, um, in no uncertain terms, like a complete coward in that, in that setting, Sure. Uh, and I think that my cowardice was one of the things that stopped me from doing other things, right? That would we would consider like stereotypical black, right? Like I never, I never sold drugs. I never like murdered anyone as as a youth, even though I knew kids who did, right? But I was too, I was too afraid to do that. Yeah. And so that doesn't make me like a good person or like better than no. some of my friends who did, right? And I, but I hate that it's framed that way, you know. And I wanted to go back and forth on that and be like. Yeah, you're not superior because like you were a nerd and you you got beat up in school instead right. of beating people up, right? It's just like you're in a situation where there is someone who felt bad by your treatment, you know, whether that was like my little sister or like another another friend or something, you know. It's like it doesn't right. separate you from the the situation or the environment. Right. We're all just like one friend group away from certain behavior a little little bit away from yeah Yeah. well I mean I guess in the school context it's like one friend yeah (laughs) and like you know I was a real asshole in school I was sort of a mean girl (laughs) I think it's just I I, I'll I'll defend myself in saying this Mm -hmm. I never use violence because I'm terrified of all forms of violence but I am funny and so I would make a joke about someone, mm-hmm. someone else's expense being like, this is hilarious, but it was mean. And I just didn't understand that not everyone, you know, but it's like, now I think about it a little more. I'm still sort of mean spirited. I just, it's my sense of humor. I do, guess, you mean, but it is, do you mean in high school or like middle school? Like middle what? school. Middle, middle school. school. Okay. Well, I was still funny, mean in high school, I think, but I think people caught up to my, I had an older brother who's really smart. Uh, and so, you know, okay. it's like you, you're just around people, like a certain sense of humor, the sarcasm. And like, mm-hmm. I don't know if sarcasm plays super well with like nine, 10, 11 year olds. But when I got to high school, I was like, okay, I feel like I'm better. But the point being is like, I still think that I'm like, probably a good person but there's definitely people who don't think that about me. oh yeah yeah who, who are, are like, a oh thousand God, percent correct <laughs> to not think that about me like my big fear is that i would become very famous and then all these people would come out and remember horrible things that i said about them that like i can never defend 
Yeah. You know, and like, I don't remember them now, but like, I probably, I'm sure I was mean. <laughs> you I mean, know, and like- there are certainly, right. And I don't mean to like, you know, relativize it to, to the extent where I'm like, oh, there's no difference in like what kinds of meanness or what kinds of violence or whatever, you know? No, of course not. Uh, I would never want to do that because I think no, no, that no. sometimes people get, of course. you know, get upset yeah. and like, oh, I'm, I'm innocent because I didn't do this thing. And I'm like, well, right. you know. Well, right. It's just the, levels to it. And it's like yeah. the impact, you know, all of that stuff. Obviously, it's di- it's I wasn't physically violent to anyone. Not that that's any yeah. better necessarily, but that's more just a personal thing. Because like you, I also am a coward and I'm very scared of getting hit myself. And so I would never, <laughs> never oh my God, it's for selfish worst. reasons. <laughs> it's more of a selfish thing. It's like, I don't want to get in a fist fight with anyone because I really don't want to be touched in any way by anyone else so yeah. i'm gonna just i'm just gonna be cutting and be a psychotic bitch behind your back you know just more that vibe well that's um, offensive. it's useful it's useful you learn yeah. to be you learn i think like as you get older and you don't want to fight a lot you learn to talk shit so that you'd never have yeah. to get to that point so that's exactly right yeah. it was my my defense mechanism um speaking of defense mechanisms you have this great <laughs> section in the book where you talk about thwarting other people's desires by not reacting how people want you to react so like not crying when the bullies are mean to you or like or even with your grandfather you talk about like him wanting you to do certain things and you like remaining really stoic or whatever does this still motivate you is that still something that you use where you're like this is what people want from me sometimes yeah yeah if somebody says something really fucking ridiculous to me i'll just be like i'm not gonna say anything to that (laughs) that's not worth my engagement and so there, there are ways that I still do that sometimes, you know, to a lesser degree, right? You don't have to deal with that as much as a, as a grown person. Right, right. But was any of that present in the book? Like, did you have any of that where you felt like you were kind of like subverting what you thought people might want from you in the book? That's a good question. Um, I don't know. I guess um, what you asked the question about audience earlier too, Tracy. Yeah. And I think my primary audience were like friends who I had known for like, you know, 15, 20 ish years at least. And so they already kind of knew everything. And I was not trying to like subvert their expectations, but there were there were ways in which, right, of course, like I have over my shoulder a bunch of, you know, people who maybe like I went to work, had like a workshop beef with or something like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Or like, um, you know. We love a workshop general, beef. <laughs> <laughs> just like generalize like, oh, I don't care if this, you know, of engaging with this person who maybe I must have, right? Even if I, I don't think of a delivery, like I must have been thinking like, I am not going to do that because you want me to say that mm-hmm. thing. And maybe it's the essay thing. Maybe it's the essayistic part of it. Um, the explaining kind of over, mm-hmm. like going on for pages and pages to be like, well, in this year, did you know, you know, being a sociologist basically, right? Right. right. About my, about yeah. my own life. Um, that's so interesting. I, I get that vibe from you though, that you're a little bit of like a, a little bit of like a fuck you. I'm not going to do what you think I'm going to do kind of person, which I like. It's a, it's a it's a good thing. I like it. I, I don't, you know, predictability is boring to me. And yeah. I felt like part of that was in your book of like, I'm not going to do this memoir the way that everyone else is going to do this memoir because I don't want you to think that you know what this story is, um, which I think kept me going because I was like, I actually don't know where this is going. You know, <laughs> I was like, I actually do want to know what comes next. So towards, I think it's like it's on page 90 because <laughs> I have notes. Um, <laughs> and you talk about how like, what what's the future gonna be? Will he develop gumption and introspection? Mm-hmm. And will he articulate a nuanced critique of structural injustices centering on the violence of cis white heteropatriarchy and publish said study through a professional press, therefore saving not only himself, but the world from such dangers? And I mean, you're talking about your future you. 
but also like this book exists now and you did publish this story and you did, you know, in a sense, get out, if you will, or, or, you know, not necessarily physically get out, but like you did change the perceived arc of your life and you did make it and all of these things. And then, and then you wrote it and then it's published and it's not just published by anybody. It's published by a big five publisher. And so what does that all mean to you? What is that reckoning like for you? Yeah, it's very, very strange, Tracy. I will say <laughs> I um. So there's like a couple of things. I mean, I, I will say that I'm still dealing with a lot of the costs of, mm. of, of that. And I think, you know, attempting to change one's own and like entire families like class position is just like an ongoing and forever thing. Right. So even if I you know, can, you know, have like a reasonable set of means, like the a big thing I can choose almost like what school my kids go to, right? Like mm-hmm. I can move so that I can be like, and this is something I was just dealing with recently. I can move to a place where I can be like, okay, this is a slightly better school. And that was never an option for right. people in my family for the past like three, four generations. And so I'm like, okay, that's different. But it is, it does still feel like a lot of um, changes that I'm still making that are still necessary. And I also, you know, I think there's something in there about a frustration that I often have where like black children are used as examples to like lead, like to kind of guide our way into a certain kind of future, not by way of like us paying attention to what they think and feel, but by way of like, here, you take it, you know, (laughs) like the balls in your court kind of thing. As in like, you know, uh, you could do the work mm. in a lot of ways. And I felt in my own family, that was one of the kind of overarching things that I felt a lot, which was like, oh, you'll be able to do it. You know, it's like five adults or like people older than me. And, and a lot of folks would be like, yeah, it's on you now. It's like your responsibility. Right. Um, and that, you know, of course that happens a lot in like the larger role as well. And that was such a frustration for me, maybe. Um, and something that sometimes I'm still bitter at, especially when I see people talk about my own kids in that way, or like look to them to be like, oh yeah, you can do this this thing or whatever that maybe doesn't have to do with what they want or need because nobody's usually asking. This per- the kind of person who does that isn't usually asking, but they're like, oh, you're a future leader of like this kind of thing that we think is good or useful rather than having a care about, you know, like, do you want to talk about your own desires, your own wishes, your own kind of, way that you perceive the world, right? I, I guess. And um, I think that in very subtle ways that just happens enough that it, it frustrates me to no end. Yeah. Sort of like a mix of uplift suasion and respectability politics and then also like projecting. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it is. When, you know, I think if we spent more time, if we dwelled, you know, with what a lot of like young Black kids, you know, felt or desired, we wouldn't get a lot of strange and interesting (laughs) ideas or things would, you know, would be made possible. But sometimes I feel like we're rushing a certain kind of like, you need to grow up and like lead the race or whatever, (laughs) you know, in in ways that we think are useful. But I'm like, I don't know how useful that is to a lot of uh, these kids in particular. So, um, so that becomes true. Uh, This person probably heard me talking. (laughs) Did you know you wanted to be a writer from a young age? Was that something that you new no not at all i um i was i thought i was gonna be like a junior biologist or something like that you know like one of these like black steve Irwin kind of people okay Okay. so i had this this i mean in the book you know there's like there's lots of creatures in the book yeah yeah so there's there's an animal obsession 
Uh, and then I thought, you know, in relation to that, I would maybe be a cartoonist. Um, I, I drew a lot in a way, but I never really wrote. Right? It was, you know, either drawing or thinking that I was like a baby animal behaviorist or, or something like that. Uh, I so never when did thought, writing come in? I was in school for biology because that's what I used to do. And this is like a, you know, college teacher story that I think is a kind of uh, thing that happens. And I had a couple teachers in college, um, none probably more important than Aisha Lockridge. She was at St. Joe's and I would be studying biology, but I would take like African-American lit or writing classes um, or what have you. And um, she was like, oh, I think this is like really interesting. Like maybe, you know, you care a lot about this in a way that you Mm. don't necessarily care about the biology thing. You just are afraid of being poor for the rest of your life. But, you know, enter this conversation about like, if you get a PhD, they will give you money for this. And you can maybe, you know, simultaneously uh, start providing for yourself and your family while also maybe doing something that you're interested in, um, right? Or that'll that'll give you a reason to live beyond the immediate or foreseeable future. And so around that time, um, when I was finishing up studying biology, I, I decided I was like, okay, I can, I can go and write now. Speaking of animals, they're on the cover of your book. How involved were you in the cover? And also, will you talk to us a little bit about the title, Sync? Yeah, so I I got really lucky cover-wise. There was like a spate of covers. There was like five or six of them that my editor sent me. And I immediately was like, okay, this is the one that I like. Mm. And I stuck with that one. And then we like fiddled with it a little bit, you know, changing some textures or what have you. But it wasn't a big shift. So that was, you know, right away, like good reading and labor on Grand Central's uh, yeah. kind of kind of and and then for the title, I was thinking of like so in the second house that we lived in when I was in middle school, there was a lot of like uh, <laughs> the sink that was quite literally always clogged, mm-hmm. and I, like that was one of my jobs was to, like clean the kitchen, and it would make me so mad because it felt like people were just like throwing shit in there all the time. <laughs> Uh, and they were like, oh yeah, Joey will get it. You know, he'll go get it. And then, but you couldn't really see what was in there either. And so you would put your hand in there and sometimes you get <gasps> cut by stuff. But yeah, right. Exactly. It gives you that kind of, that kind of. I hated uh, reading this part. I, I hated this I part. I hated the sink. <laughs> I hated it so much. And, um, but it, it started to stand in for like, I don't know what's in here, but it's mm. like my job or it's like a certain kind of work that I am tasked with doing and figuring it out. But, um, there's not, uh, from a traditional source at least, a set of like information or programs that is just going to do it for me. Um, or there's no way to figure out except for like doing it. And you might get cut, you know, like you might pull out, you know, a whole fucking chicken that somebody put in there for whatever reason. Right. Um, you know, other kind of goofy things, but um, it still felt like this was something I had to do. And that became the kind of overarching thinking for the book. What's not in the book that you wish was? Mm. Maybe more stuff um, about, like, I would have extended it, I think, maybe, and spent more time talking about it, thinking through friendship, which I think is something that I'm writing about a lot now. Mm -hmm. And so maybe when I go back and I look at Sync, I'm like, oh, yeah, this is what I'm interested in getting up to. But I kind of like separated it into a whole nother set of programs. Mm -hmm. So I I think I would have spent more time uh, focusing on like, things that I ended up doing with with friends in the in the kind of later years. Got it. When you were writing this book, what else were you doing work work-wise, school-wise? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was like a lot of stuff. So I was um 
I was in, first I was studying biology and then I was doing the MFA at Notre Dame, but I was working um, for a long time. I was a medic and I was an EMT. So I was working at uh, this hospital. That was like my main job for like most of my adult life. Um, so I worked at this hospital in North Philly for like 12 or 13 years total. And now I was mostly doing that. But I worked a bunch of, I was working at like Home Depot. So I was like working oh at you know, a, bunch, a bunch of other spots, but it was primarily um, the hospital all the way up until uh, COVID started. Um, that was around the time that I had stopped working at the hospital. And when you wrote this book, how, or I guess even now still as you write, how often do you write? How many hours a day? Do you write yeah. every day? Do you listen to music? Are you snacks, beverages, rituals? Tell I, me about it. I mean, I wish I could still write every day. I used to, back in the day. Okay. I, used to, I used to write every day, but I try to write a little bit. I get up super early, like 4.35, because it's still asleep. You know, my oldest gets up a little bit after that. And then... Oh. um yeah, it's like 6.15. I'm like, you don't have to be awake right now. Like, why Why did you go? What are they doing? It's like looking at me. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like if you're going to get up at this time, like, like you could like do read something. stuff or something. Yeah. I know, I know. It's like looking at me. Um, so so that's, that's, that's that piece. I um, I tend to just drink like coffee and water when I write. Because um, if I start eating, it'll be all about the food and I won't do any, I won't do shit else if I start okay. eating. Because I take okay. the food too seriously. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it'll be, you know, like when I do, I like segment off time to eat. I'm like, this is an important hour and a half where I'm going to eat this thing. It's a lot of time to return. eat. I don't like to rush, you know? <laughs> it's like I hate. <laughs> Maybe that's a holdover from like uh, remembering times when I didn't have enough food or something. I'm like, okay, yeah. now I'm going to make sure that I take this eating thing really seriously. We are going to talk yeah. about what we're going to eat and we're going to make it, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Um, so that, that tends to be how, how it goes. And I get as much uh, reading or writing done as I can before it's time for, you know, school and other stuff to come into play. And what's a word you can never spell correctly on the first try? Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> most words, I think. Okay. Staccato, maybe, is, oh, a, word that I, is wow. a word that I can't spell the fir- uh, on the first time. Anything with, like, double vowels or double consonants, I cannot spell on the first try nothing consonants are my personal nightmare i i don't it's not happening for me um do you i know this is sort of a mean question to ask you because what (laughs) when we're talking your book comes out tomorrow but do you know what comes next for you um what's supposed to come next is uh, no, what, well what, well what you what you what hope like come to next <laughs> i'm not i'm not like prescribing something has oh, to yeah, come yeah. next i'm just curious like what you're and you can also say fuck you <laughs> my book comes out tomorrow i'm not there yet which is like totally fine no, no, no that's fine i um so there's a novel that i have um revisions due uh next month i think oh or okay. april something like that and then a collection of short stories um that'll start popping up around sometime with the same editor same it's all uh, grand central Central. yeah got it yeah cool those are the main things for people who love this book what else would you recommend to them that's maybe in conversation with your work i think um i mean everybody who listens to you will have read like kiasi for example right um of course uh i really like um stephen dunn's book potted meat uh which i felt like was really important for thinking about this book um, and I like uh, this other book by Tanya Tagak called Split Tooth, okay. which happened to be one of my one of my favorite books. Um, I think maybe maybe those are two biggies. I guess those okay. those are two biggies. When you when you were writing this, could you read memoir or were you like shutting that genre out 
as you were working on this? I know I, th- that's a really yeah. common conversation for, especially for memoirists. It's like, I won't read any memoirs while I'm working. And some people are like, all I wanted to do was read other memoirs. I felt like I made reading memoir my job, even though I didn't want to read a bunch of memoirs. <laughs> I was just like, okay, I can't, you know, write some shit and not read a bunch of the other. And that's my own, like, I don't know, like self-consciousness or whatever. Um, so I was reading them, but I was like frustrated at the fact that I was reading them. Um, okay. And I mostly read stuff that I liked, um, you know, that I enjoyed during the time. That you'd that read I, before. Sometimes that I read before and sometimes new stuff. So, I mean, my favorite genre is still fantasy. And so I was reading a lot of that stuff. And then I'd be like, all right, time for work. I got to read these memoirs now. And it'd be oh. like a stack, you know, that I got to get through. <laughs> uh, that's funny. What do you hope folks will keep in mind as they read Sync? I think um, I love the that. Uh, thing that you had brought back from Kimon Phoenix saying, thinking about the self as a character. But um, I really, really would like folks to kind of take seriously um, experiences of, of Black childhood that may or may not divulge or, or shift from what one expects. And that, um, and to think about those years as an experience in and of themselves and not something that needs to be kind of like recuperated <laughs> into mm-hmm. like adult ways of thinking. Um, for like to make the child useful for us. Yeah. yeah. If you could have one person dead or alive read this book, who would you want it to be? I think now it would be my grandfather, um, who only just recently passed. Uh, he read some stuff, but he hasn't read the whole thing. He read like the, you know, this essay that's in the offing that was like about him, but not all of it. Okay. That's it for me, I think. I didn't really talk about any of the nerd stuff, but I don't know. <laughs> I'm not really into that kind of stuff. So it didn't really stick yeah. in my heart. Yeah, <laughs> like, look, like, I'm like, I don't know what a Dragon Ball Z is. I've never Dragon Ball Z. Look, if it's not for, you know, <laughs> and I, I try not to be overbearing about that stuff. I hate the kind of like nerd evangelist kind of. Uh, well, I feel like I will say this. I feel like when the book, you know, I get sent the book for people who don't know uh, before a book comes out, you know, they're assigned a publicist and the publicist has a one sheet that they send to media and it says like what the book's about. And this, your one sheet had a lot about like this, like, you know, your childhood and like coming out of it, like because of nerd culture. And as I read it, I just didn't feel like that's what I was reading. Like I felt Mm. like you were a nerd, but I don't feel like that transcended your experience at all. I just felt like that was part of your experience. Just like everything else was like, just like, you know, your relationship with your aunt was and your relationship with your sister and your relationship with your easy bake oven. Like it was all part of it, but I would never be like, Oh, this is a book about someone who's, who was saved by food because they loved an easy bake oven. (laughs) So I think like for me, I was expecting this like nerd part to be like this huge part of the book, but it, I don't know. It was equally present as were all these other parts. So I think maybe that's why I didn't really like latch onto it. Cause I a, didn't know what you're talking about because Dragon Ball Z, I don't know. I'm not a nerd. Right. Um, I'm just a different nerd. I am totally a nerd. Just not a, not that's a I mean, video there's, game nerd. There's different degrees and modes. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. But, th- but the way that you described it, that's how I felt about it as well. Right. I was like all these things are just as important as, you know, like the other things. Yeah, I think part of it's just marketing. But, you know, anyways. Anyways, uh, but Joseph, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. You can get the book now. It's in the world. It's called Sync. Uh, Get it wherever you got your books. Do you you read the audiobook? Yes. Joseph reads the audiobook. So uh, for those of you who love a memoir by audio, by author, there you go. And everyone else, we will see you in the stacks.
All right, y'all, that does it for us today. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you again to Joseph Earl Thomas for being our guest. I'd also like to say a thank you to Roxanne Jones for helping to make this conversation possible. Remember, our book club pick for March is Bad Feminist by Roxanne Gay. And we will be discussing that book on March 29th with Shanita Hubbard. If you love the show and want inside access to it, head to patreon.com slash the stacks and join the stacks pack. Please make sure you're subscribed to The Stacks wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram and at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. This episode of The Stacks was edited by Christian Duenas with production assistance from Lauren Tyree. Our graphic designer is Robin McCright, and our theme music is from Tagiragis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. 